Come on. John Sullivan is a JD. He is the president and CEO of the Institute for Health and Productivity Management and the Workplace Wellness Alliance. And now, finally, a guest on Lifeblood Maximize. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, George. Pleasure to be with you. Yes, this is George G, and it is time to go. Sean, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, my personal life uh, has been largely my work for probably too long now, but uh, it's because I love what I do. And what we do now for almost 25 years is focus on the workforce as human capital, as an investment for employers, and their health in particular as an investment and not just a cost. Too many employers don't get that and aren't able to link up health with performance. So we named our institute, uh, not, a, not an exciting name, but it describes what we do, the Institute for Health and Productivity Management. As far as a life away from the institute goes, uh, <laughs> there isn't uh, a very active or exciting one. I mostly like to relax when I'm not working and I'm working so much of the time, but I love music and uh, do a little bit of that myself. And other than church activity, that's pretty much it. I love it. So when you say you do a little bit of it yourself, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, it means I, I used to be uh, more of a, of a songwriter and singer myself, Am, amateur. Not, not, I didn't make it to Nashville, didn't get quite that far. But I, I did that from way back in my law school days uh, with various people off and on, mostly on my own since then. So I've always kind of used that as a, a way to... Uh, relax, express inner feelings, and uh, just move on to uh, the next work assignment. I love it. That's perfect. So 25 years working on human capital, working to, to help employers understand that spending on the actual humans, that's an investment and not an expense. How did you, how did you get into that work? Two ways. Uh, originally, I was a labor economist. That was my training as an undergrad. Economics was my major before I went to law school. Later on, uh, in the think tank world in Washington, D.C., at the American Enterprise Institute, I became a healthcare economist almost overnight because labor economics was not that exciting anymore, <laughs> and healthcare was getting very hot in the economics field. So I switched gears and spent a number of years. Uh, at AEI, as it's known, uh, in particular, working with employers in the private sector on what they were doing in the uniquely uh, privately centered healthcare system that the U.S. has. Only Brazil is the only other country where major employers pay for the health benefits for their employees. So uh, I spent a lot of time with leading employers like Dow Chemical. In those days, it was also John Deere, but it's Caterpillar it's been uh, Intel, companies like that, and then since then overseas, finding out what are they doing to try to maximize the health of their employees within certain cost constraints, get the best value out of health care. It suddenly occurred to me that they weren't thinking about productivity at all. So later on, after I'd done a stint uh, as the original CEO of something called the National Business Coalition on Health with business coalitions around the country seeking better value from the American healthcare system, 
I decided, no, we're not getting there. They're still not thinking about this in a, in a health and productivity way. So with two MDs, uh, we started a new nonprofit, the Institute for Health and Productivity Management. I left Washington, D.C., where I'd been for 25 years, uh, moved to Dallas, spent three years there getting this started, then came to Scottsdale, and it's been here now for 21 years. Nice. So from your background, how, how is it the way that you are looking at this problem slash opportunity different than, than a, perhaps other folks are looking at it? Yeah, not to say we're the only ones doing it this way, but we were one of the earliest. And we developed a model that tried to get beyond just looking at what employers were spending hmm. on health care. Now, they view that as their health care costs, but it's not really a full definition of their costs. It's really what they're spending. And economists have a hard time explaining what economic costs are. They're not the same thing as financial expenditures. But uh, financial statements is what most executives look at. They pay attention to how much money goes out the door. They're not aware of what's happening every day in the workplace, how people are less than optimally effective because they're suffering from depression, pain, allergies, whatever it is. So I think it's the economic cost angle rather than the financial expenditure way of looking at it that differentiates us from most people who think about health care cost and an expense are not the same thing. Nope, that certainly does make sense. And when you were doing this work 30, 25, 30 years ago, um, was, was this pretty common? I, I imagine you were probably on the cutting edge of this. We were early. There were a few other people looking into this, uh, but as far as trying to bring it to the attention of employers on any kind of large scale, we were the first to do that because we developed a full cost model that included healthcare spending because it has to start with that for most employers. But then it took them beyond that to look at how much was disability really costing them. And then how much were they losing, not just from people being absent from work, but the big thing that we introduced into their thinking was a concept called presenteeism which has come into vogue now. Most people toss it around. They don't always mean the same thing by it. But what it essentially means is, how much less are you accomplishing when you're at work than you could if you weren't suffering from some kind of what we call functional impairment? Again, you could be depressed. You could be in pain. Could be all kind, you, you could be obese and not able to move around well. All kinds of things that affect your ability to be optimally productive. And is that a pretty high cost? <laughs> it's huge. Uh, <laughs> validated now, not just by us, but by a number of uh, published studies and peer-reviewed journals to be at least twice and more likely about three times what we spend on medical care. So it is huge. But again, it's an economic cost. So people aren't looking at it month to month or even year to year on financial statements. They have to investigate this situation in their own workforce and find out what's really going on. Is that, I, I imagine that, that this problem, the problem of presenteeism is just exacerbating more than it's, it's, it's getting better. It's getting worse before it's more so than it's getting better. 
it is getting worse because still a majority of even fairly uh, large, sophisticated employers with the resources to do this are not focusing on it the way that they should. And so the, the biggest reasons for this, and I left out a big one and it's sleep issues, are simply not getting on their radar screen sufficiently. They're still looking at what it's costing them because people have diabetes or heart disease or cancer. Those are huge medical expenses. Most of the reasons for productivity loss are not huge medical expenses. They're, they're, they're a different kind of cost. Some of them are, some overlap, but generally speaking, uh, these are not what most of them have been thinking about. So it, it requires a lot of education. And it also requires senior management that understands this idea. And senior management may change in a company and they may lose interest in this subject. They see it as a way, okay, we don't need to spend money on health and wellness anymore. So, uh, you know, that, that's something we can cut. And so it is getting worse, yes. What would, why would people think that they could cut this or cut? Well, because their most immediate objective is to spend less money on medical care. That's where they're seeing uh, the rising trend all the time. Things like specialty drugs for uh, more serious diseases now, for example. So again, that's what gets their attention and they get fixated on it. They're not able to think, well, okay, if we're able to get further upstream and head off more of this stuff, how much will that really save us people not only not getting sick and saving medical costs, that's going to take a while maybe with some folks, but how much are we really going to be able to realize in better performance from the workforce? And, and that's where we try to come in with measurement tools that help them see that. Got it. So you've developed or you have actual tools to be able to, to measure the cost of this. And if you're able to go into the employee population, measure this, and then you come back to the organization and say, hey, you're spending you know, X number of dollars in healthcare, but you're actually the, the actual economic cost of this presenteeism issue that you're experiencing is actually two or three times more than what you're spending on healthcare. That's right. Uh, when we first started doing this, a lot of people didn't believe it. Fortunately, the measurement tools, which have been developed at places like uh, Tufts Medical School, Harvard Medical School, so they have a good pedigree. They have been so well validated now, and we've used them around the world, that only a troglodyte can say that I don't believe these kinds of numbers because self-reported data uh, are, are extremely reliable and they're actually pretty conservative. Most people won't tell you that they're as affected by their health issues as they really are. They tend to understate that. So self-reporting, asking, that is one of these tools. It is the way to do it. There's really no way to find this in any kind of... Uh, databases generated the way that medical costs can be tracked off of medical claims. It doesn't exist. So uh, what we're not really measuring is productivity itself, George. We're deriving productivity from measuring functional impairment. How much less able are people to do certain kinds of things and different kinds of jobs than they would be if they weren't depressed, if they weren't in pain, if they weren't obese and so forth. Got it. Okay. And so give me the, the major causes of it again. It's behavioral, mental health, um, sleep you mentioned. Yeah. 
The number one reason uh, now worldwide, it's just gotten worse and getting even worse because of the after effects of uh, the pandemic, are mental health issues. Uh, they are pretty much recognized everywhere we've worked, even in China, where they weren't seen that so much that way at first, as the leading reason for what we are calling presenteeism. Pretty close behind, though, uh, are still issues related to pain, musculoskeletal and otherwise, things like migraine headaches, which are not musculoskeletal. Any kinds of pain obviously interfere seriously with, with productivity. Uh, obesity is finally being recognized because it's getting so bad so many places as a major reason for being less able to perform all kinds of work. And then it can be something as simple as seasonal allergies. Twice a year, about half the people in the workforce have allergy attacks that cause an amazing amount of productivity loss. And we've tracked that. It's actually, it's actually the first place we made our business case for investing because it doesn't cost very much to deal with allergies and the payoff's enormous. That's interesting. Never really even considered that. But yes, yeah, I imagine most the, people numbers don't. <laughs> are, the numbers are staggering, I'm sure. All right. So we, we, we measure what the potential impact is in our organization. And then it's a matter of, I imagine, trying to come up with ways to help solve this. Exactly right. We don't stop with just doing the analysis of the cost. We've actually rolled up our sleeves and gone with employers into their workforces done pilot projects to improve uh, general health through behavior change. And actually most of our work has been on lifestyle change. Uh, we work with occupational health people in the workplace to get people to do the simple things, eat better, move around and sleep better and don't smoke. Those are the, now stress management's been added as a fifth critical part of basic health and well-being. So occupational health and the people who do that, that's really been our, our brain trust in essentially our constituency. These are the people who are in the workplace. They're not at headquarters managing benefits, so they know a lot more about what's affecting people. And their motto pretty simply is good health is good business. And so you implement an intervention or multiple interventions, depending on what the employee population is suffering from the causes of this presenteeism and what is a, a typical timeline or what is that, how, how does that sort of take shape before you can actually look at what the returns are? Good news is that you can see a return by in reducing functional impairment and presenteeism in six to nine months, which you cannot really see in all a lot of other kinds of programs. Employers just don't realize this. What they're looking for is to reduce their medical spending in a short time frame. That's very hard to do. Uh, in fact, if you're running a good wellness program, you're gonna be finding more people with risk factors that need to be addressed. And some of that may involve medical treatment, not just lifestyle change. For example, obesity. The majority of people who are now classified as obese are past the point where they're ever going to be a healthy weight with just behavior change. They can't get there. So they need some kind of help from, uh, from medical treatment. So in six to nine months, in various studies, we've been able to show big improvements in health risk reduction and in presenteeism reduction in various workforces that, that we have uh, spent time with. And that's the good news for employers. You can get this kind of return quickly while down the road further, 
if you reduce these risks, you'll be reducing future heart attacks, future strokes, future cases of type 2 diabetes. I imagine that this is really a story of commitment then, right? It's like, what is the organization's <laughs> appetite to, uh, to do this? It is. And it takes a company. In fact, the companies that are best at this are those who have their employees for a long time and value them. So uh, we work more with basic industries than we do with highfalutin technology companies because they're not the same kind of workforce at all. Uh, they're younger, so they have fewer health problems to start with, but they don't have the same long-term horizon or investment. People who work in oil and gas or on railroads and, and many other kinds of industries, manufacturing, they, they essentially want to stay there. And unless they're laid off for some reason, it, it's a lifetime job for many of them. So making investments in their health makes a lot of sense, and it gives their senior management a different way of thinking about them. It's easier to think of your people as human capital when they're a long-term asset like that. Yeah, that certainly does make sense. So how I has, for lack of a better term, the, the, the sales process, has this gotten easier over time? Ah, I wish I could say yes, George. Uh, <laughs> it's never easier. Uh, and I suspect you're good at sales yourself. So you know, every sales opportunity is a new one. Uh, I love the old motto from a super salesman, some will, some won't, so what next? Mm. So we have to knock on a number of doors to find people who A, have a long-term outlook, and B, understand economic cost versus financial expenditures. That, that's the key perception they have to have. And they really have to value their people. Most companies say our people are our most important asset. Very few of them really mean it. And we see, unfortunately, we see that more and more all the time, the way uh, folks are treated in the workforce. And that's been just made worse by uh, what we've been all been going through for the last year plus now. So Do probably you... the best example I can give you, it's a great quote from the former CEO of Dow Chemical, which was one of our blue chip companies we worked with. He said, if we oiled and greased our people the way we do our machines, they break <laughs> down less often and cost us a lot less. <laughs> Beautiful. I think that that's it right there, right? It's good. We use it a lot. Uh, it's sort of like the, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the ultimate chicken's egg conversations, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. Um, so, all right. So you need to find organizations that, that actually do truly value and understand what you've just described there of putting making sure that, 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 that you're optimizing the human beings in your organization. And when you have optimized human beings, then they will have optimal or more optimal results. Um, and then this is something that needs to be constantly monitored and checked. It does. It also needs to be uh, recommitted to when there are changes in senior management. That's one of the things that can be disruptive. Uh, fortunately, some companies like Unilever and Dow Chemical and Nestle that we work with some uh, overseas-based companies as well, uh, Chevron here in the U.S., uh, have done this with, through a change of top management. And that's kind of the key of whether or not they're committed to their human capital. Others, someone comes in and essentially the cost-cutting mentality uh, is the mentality that is the enemy of this approach. And of course, uh, probably a majority of, of, of CEOs still essentially are more cost cutters than they are long-term investors. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, so long as an organization, the, the top leadership, the folks that are driving these decisions, so long as they 
as as they get it. Probably an organization that's never too small. No, you're right about that. In fact, in some smaller organizations, we don't work much with them because we have to concentrate on the organizations that have the resources and the knowledge to work with us and the partners we work with. But we have on numerous occasions tried to reach out to mid-sized employers. And the great advantage there is you can often be a lot closer to the senior people around the country, a company. And in fact, you almost always are. And they often are more committed to their individual employees than those who run giant bureaucratic corporations. Got it. I like it. Well, Sean, people are ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? (laughs) Remember that your people are not a cost. They are an investment, a simple formula to keep in mind. And they're the most important investment you can make. And the returns are more than just financial. Uh, They will have a lot to do with what kind of company you are and how much other people will want to come and work for you. Well, I think that, that is great stuff that definitely gets a come on. Come on. John, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? How can people engage with you and the Institute for Health and Productivity Management? We are ihpm.org. Very simple. And uh, you can find out a lot about us on our website. But obviously, uh, we are very open to talking with people. Uh, we, we return phone calls and emails from people who sometimes wouldn't get answered by others, but we feel if, if we don't, if we're not receptive to that, we're going to miss out on a lot. I love it. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Sean your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to IHPM.org, check out all the great resources and reach out. Thanks again, Sean. Thank you, George. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together.